strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Very good. Chris Merrill in for Mike Broomhead on KTAR. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, we have a, kind of a love-hate relationship with home values here in the Valley, don't we? Yeah. I can tell you, I, uh, I bought a house in 2015, and when my wife and I went to sell that house, uh, the value had gone up a little bit, and we ended up closing on it in January 2020. So the, the home value had gone up, and we uh, we did okay. You know, we did fine. I think we bought it for 300000 and we sold it for like 385 right? The real kicker on this is that I saw somebody list it this last summer, the same house that we had, and they they listed it, and it sold for $700,000. What? <laughs> same house. Uh, they had changed the carpeting in one room. That was it. Oh, my goodness. It was a heartbreaker. Uh, but both of us felt like, you know what? We didn't lose anything. It's, it's hard to look at that and say, oh, you lost $300,000. Could have made so much more money. Nah, we didn't. We didn't lose any money, right? First rule of investing, don't lose money. So we didn't lose any money. That was all right. But you got kind of a love-hate relationship. And that is, if you're the person who, for instance, bought our house for three eighty-five, and then two years later, we're able to sell it for 700000 what you love when those home values go up, don't you? Woo! feels good. You're like, I made a killing. If, however, you are like my wife and I, where we didn't have a home for a little while there, and then we were looking to take the money we made on our on our home sale, watching all the other homes go up in value, we went, holy cow, we can't even afford half of what we had before. So if you have a home and the value is going up double digits every year, you're loving it. If you're trying to get into a home and you keep watching those home values go up double digits every year, you are hating it. We're looking at 2023 and we're wondering how long uh, is this this housing boom going to last? How long is this you know this hot real estate market going to last? Now, surely you'll listen to the to the weekend shows where you've got realtors that are telling you now is a good time to do something, buy, sell, whatever it is at the time. But there are a number of questions going into 2023 as far as the the home sales go. Will we keep seeing double digit growth? Will supply open up a little bit? And what's going on with the mortgage rates? ABC was telling us about what those home prices are doing now. Home prices are down-ish for the fourth straight month now, and that trend is likely to continue in the new year, experts say. So joining us now to break all this down, ABC's Elizabeth Schulte. Uh, Elizabeth, prices down four months in a row. We were talking here in the studio. Prices are still pretty high, and interest rates are high. But first, why are prices finally breaking out of this crazy housing market we've been having for a while? You know, Terry, this comes down to what the Federal Reserve has been trying to do. We've been talking about how borrowing costs are getting more expensive. Interest rates have gone up. And the biggest place we've seen that play out is in the housing market. Yep. It's more expensive to take out a mortgage. And as this has kind of kept buyers on the sideline because of the monthly payments going up, we've started to see housing prices come down. But you absolutely say it right. Down-ish is kind of the key word there. Because we see buyers on the sidelines from higher rates, we're also seeing higher effects from interest 
inflation. Consumers generally are a little bit tighter about their finances because some of those day-to-day costs are higher. At the same time, there's a long way to go for the housing market before these prices come back down to levels they were before the pandemic. This red-hot market has stayed really hot and is starting to cool, probably going to still cool off in the next couple of months, but a little bit of a ways to go when it comes to actually being affordable, especially in certain parts of the country. Yeah, and this is one of those certain parts of the country, right? We saw this happen in the 2000 aughts where the home values skyrocketed and then... Right. We saw the, the, the housing, you know, the crash and everything else that happened in 2008, 2009, uh, the Great Recession. And a lot of that, uh, you know, impacted those of us in the Valley because of home values. They were so incredibly overvalued at the time. I have concerns of the the current market for that same reason. I don't I don't think we're going to see a, a housing crash like we did back in, in 2009. Uh, but I did see that the values started going up in, in a crazy way like they did there from what of oh four to 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 oh nine they were just they were just ballooning they were going crazy right and this is why I say we have this love hate relationship in Arizona even more than other places because in places like uh, Phoenix Las Vegas uh, big cities in California uh, some of those other markets say you know Dallas Miami where all of a sudden you see those home values go up double digits 30% a year you know 20 25 30% a year the correction tends to be painful and so what we're hoping that we see in 2023 is that the supply opens up that the the prices sort of moderate but we don't want to see them crash I'm just afraid that people like whoever paid $700,000 for my old house that I didn't make the money on is suddenly going to watch the value of that home come back down, down, down. And when they paid $700,000 and they're paying a mortgage, a $700,000 home that is now all of a sudden only worth $500,000, which I still think was overpriced for the home that I sold, um, they're going, why am I paying $700,000 for a $500,000 house? Well, the reason is because you said okay to $700,000. You seem to believe that it had that value in 2020 when you bought it. This is part of what we saw in 2009, 2010, when all of a sudden we had everybody that was just, uh, they were short selling their homes. They were just getting out. They were just handing the keys over to the to the banks and they said, look, uh, my house is only worth $200,000. Why am I paying a $450,000 mortgage? Well, now those numbers are percentage-wise similar, but they are you know, bigger numbers than what they were back then. And so that's my worry. It is fantastic if you're a homeowner and all of a sudden you're seeing these prices that are going up through the roof, so to speak. Uh, but not so great when those prices start coming down. And then if you do want to sell, it's becoming more and more difficult. Average mortgage rates actually went up slightly for the first time in six straight weeks. Uh, Freddie Mac reporting yesterday that the average on the benchmark 30-year rate increased to 6.42% from 6.27 last week. So it is a slight increase. But it's double what the average rate for a 30-year mortgage was a year ago. That was just over 3%. The long-term rate reached 7.08% in late October and again in early November as the Federal Reserve continuing to crank up its key lending rates this year in an effort to cool the economy and tame inflation. But again, they're looking for that soft landing. I don't know about you. I saw those mortgage rates hit 7% and I went, "Uh uh-oh. And yet we still see plenty of home buying. So 
How is that happening? I think much of that is because of people from other places with higher values. Could be California, could be elsewhere, where they're selling their homes for two, three million dollars. They're able to get into Phoenix and something that is seven hundred fifty or a million dollars, they go, Wow, we're getting a real deal on this. And it doesn't matter if it's a good year or a bad year. Those rates tend to be about the same. So even in, for instance, twenty twelve when home values were still really low, you may have had a home in California that you were able to sell for $600,000. And you come here, and you're able to buy a pretty swell place for $250,000. And you're thinking, what a steal. We tend to go through these ebbs and flows of the migration patterns, especially out of Southern California to Phoenix. And California has been losing some population, and people are going to Boise, Dallas, Las Vegas, Phoenix. And as they tend to emigrate out of California and immigrate into our area, that drives some of our housing values to go even faster here. But as the values come down here, they come down in California. So the rates, you know, the, the, the ratio still stays pretty close. The question is, do you have enough cash on hand if you sell your house to be able to get into something else? Or are you going to have to take a mortgage at a rate that's nearly double what it was last year? And if so, are you kicking yourself? Because I got to tell you, that's kind of the feeling sometimes. You feel like, I have to get a house while the mortgage rates are low. I may overpay for that house, but I'm going to have a low mortgage rate. On the other hand, are you better off to wait until things start to drop in value and get a higher mortgage rate and then hope that mortgage rates come down and you can refinance? Either way, you got you feel like you got to get into the game. And there is that sort of fear of missing out. Oh, what if the home I really like is going to sell and I really want that? Should I just get on it now? Well, for some people, that was the right answer. And for others, you may be kicking yourself. Many places in Arizona are going to be asking themselves the question, is this rural enough for me? Yeah, people want to get out of the, the urban areas, the metro areas. They want to get someplace uh, a little more laid back. Maybe they're going to head to Heber Overgard. There'll be a lot of lessons oh, learned. Excuse in me. Terms of- I love that autoplay when I open a website and it just starts playing the video. It makes me very happy. Let's say you want to get up to Pine Strawberry area. Whatever it might be, you're thinking, I'm going to get away. But they don't necessarily have the same amenities. And why is that? Well, they may not be considered urban enough. The U.S. Census Bureau is changing their definition of what is urban and what is rural. And quite frankly, I think they had it wrong all along. That's next. Chris Maryland from Mike Broomhead on KTAR. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News. 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Uh, Chris Merrill for my groom at KTAR. I'll tell you about what the census is during doing uh, as for calling uh, different areas rural versus urban. Rural, rural versus urban. I was taken by that uh, breaking news that, that Becky Lynn had there. The uh, the arrest it sounds like was made in the the Idaho College murders. Uh, and as Becky Lynn pointed out, one of those that were, were killed was from uh, Avondale, actually. Uh, Zena Kernodal. I think that's how you say her name, Kernodal, was the uh, 20-year-old Idaho State University student that was uh, slain. And um, bad situation going on there. The students had been out back in November and uh, on a Saturday night, and they came back home, and police believed that they were uh, murdered in their home between 3 and 4 o'clock. 
And two other roommates were home. They were in the basement sleeping. I guess they slept through the murders. So the two roommates uh, wake up and they go, oh my gosh. Um, they called friends over to the house because they thought one of the victims on the second floor had passed out and wasn't waking up. So then they called 911 and requested help for an unconscious person. And... Um, Officers found the four victims of the second and third floors of this home, and they say they don't believe anyone at the house at the time of the 911 call was involved in the murders. They also don't believe that uh, the... Uh, hold on. <clears throat> they don't believe that the other person that the roommates called was involved. So they had, like, no suspects. No sign of sexual assault. Just seems that they were asleep and then attacked. Uh, some did have defensive wounds. So we were wondering what in the world... Uh, was going on. True crime aficionados had been following this story on uh, social medias uh, since it happened. And just head scratcher. You know, what in the world is, is going on here? It sounds like there's going to be a press conference. And as Becky Lynn pointed out, they they made an arrest, right? Somebody in Pennsylvania, they made an arrest. So what's the story? I think we're all fascinated to find out what in the world went down. Why were these people uh, murdered? Why are there families that are devastated going into the holidays? Why is an entire uh, small area in in Idaho wrecked over the whole thing? Why is there a whole campus terrified that there's a killer on the loose? Why? This is a question we all have. Why? Why, why, why? A pretty reasonable question, I think, too. Pretty reasonable. Uh, Good on the... Law enforcement for doing the hard work and in, in, uh, tracking this down. I have a feeling this is going to come down to some old-fashioned police work. Uh, you know, scouring surveillance uh, tapes from local businesses, uh, checking phone records, interviewing neighbors. Uh, did anybody see anything? All this kind of stuff uh, is is going to be what what points you know law enforcement to their suspect. Up until now, we really didn't know anything. Uh, I, I think law enforcement was doing a pretty good job of, of keeping their cards close to their chest, too. Uh, in, in large part, as I pointed out, the true crime aficionados on the Internet, I think sometimes they tend to get in the way. So I think police were also making sure that they weren't uh, releasing too much information that would uh, end up enticing some of those Internet sleuths to become uh, problematic. I appreciate all you sleuths. You guys are great. And sometimes those Internet sleuths lead to a breakthrough. Sometimes the Internet sleuths... Just kind of get in the way, but hopefully we found the we found the person that did it. Bring justice to these families. Just a, a devastating story. One of those um, one of those awful stories from this last year. All right, I will dive into what the Census Bureau says is urban and rural, and some of you uh, may have just been moved into a rural area. Rural, rural. That is next. Chris Merrill, Intro Mike Broomhead on KTAR. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hi, I'm Chris Merrill, in for Mike Broomhead at KTAR. Always uh, a pleasure being with you. Coming up at 10 o'clock, we'll talk about the downtown Tempe, Shady Park, retirement community view. Seems a bit peculiar to me, but... Maybe the most interesting aspect of that entire thing is reading the reviews of the different places online. Truly entertaining. I'll share that with you coming up here at, uh, at 10 o'clock. First, 
the Census Bureau made a big change. Uh, they are changing how they classify urban versus rural. Now, I don't know about you, but I always think of an urban area as pretty sizable. And actually, if you feel like I do, you're not wrong. Uh, a place that's over 50,000 residents is called an urbanized area. That's an urbanized area. Uh, and so, let me see. What would be close to an urbanized area uh, around here? Uh, Lake Havasu City. Uh, uh, Casa Grande. That's an urbanized, an urbanized area. Those are urban areas based on the last census, 2022 population. Those are uh, urbanized areas. But they're not urban areas. I didn't even know there was a difference. Basically, you're talking about a sizable city versus what they call a, uh, an urban cluster. An urban cluster, according to the Census Bureau, had been classified as any area that had at least 2,500 people. Not 25,000, 2,500 people. So lots of places would be considered uh, an, an urban cluster. Um, let me see. Give you an example here. Um, Pine Top. There's one. Uh, Dewey Humboldt, just outside of uh, Prescott and Prescott Valley. That would be uh, an urban cluster. Bisbee, uh, Holbrook, those are urban clusters, or used to be anyway. Things smaller than 2,500 people, well, those were considered rural. The problem is, is that as the population grows and people tend to cluster together, it got to the point where 81% of the United States was considered urban. And only 19% was rural over the last uh, decade. So I want you to think of, you know, when you get out of the metro area, you kind of feel like you're into a rural area, right? You feel like, oh, here we are. We're, this is somewhat rural out here. You're going to head up to, uh, you're going to head up to the muggy on rim, right? And you're like, well, this is rural. Well, not necessarily. That may have been previously considered an urban cluster. So that's changing a little bit. So some of those places, like those that I just mentioned, uh, that used to be called urban clusters are now going to be considered rural areas. Ajo, Pima. Heber Overgard is a great example. I love Heber Overgard area. I love it. When I try to get away, I always drive up through uh, Payson and I head over to Heber Overgard. It's one of my favorite drives. Right along the rim. Fantastic. But I never thought of that as being a rural Excuse me, I never thought of that as being an urban area, but it had been what was considered an urban cluster in the past. So now that's changing. Now that is going to be considered rural. Black Canyon City, another one that's nearby that that you're probably familiar with. Um, So some of these uh, different places are changing in definition. What does it matter? That's the big question. Who cares? Who cares what the Census Bureau thinks? Well... Part of it just has to do with how you sort of identify yourself. You live in a rural community. Oh, no, you don't. Sorry, you've got 2,500 people. Your, your high school has more than 500 students, so you're, you're, that's urban. Not really. Not really. The, matter, the change matters because rural and urban areas qualify for different types of federal funding for transportation, housing, health care, education, and a big one, agriculture. The government itself, the federal government, doesn't have a standard definition of urban or rural. Which is strange, right? Because they have certain federal funding is based on whether or not a community is urban or rural. And yet, 
the federal government doesn't define urban or rural. Instead, they lean on what the Census Bureau says. So they have... they are defining funding, or rather they are they are assigning funding based on a definition that they don't have. Well, that's the federal government for you, isn't it? That makes you feel confident. According to Mary Craigle, is a bureau chief for Montana's Research and Information Services. There's a place that has a, an awful lot of communities that are kind of on the borderline. Says the whole thing about urban and rural is all about money. Places that qualify as urban are eligible for transportation dollars that rural areas aren't. And then rural areas are eligible for dollars that urban areas are not. So it makes sense to me that if you're in a place like Heber Overgard, how much of the federal transportation dollars are you leaning on probably not a ton probably not a whole lot if you're in an area that is heavy in the agriculture how much are you leaning on the transportation dollars or education dollars that might be different than it is in the rural area rural areas i believe get more in the education funding from the federal government so it makes a big difference if you are when they talk about health care funding rural hospitals and oftentimes those are very, very small um, facilities. But rural hospitals are going to qualify for different funding from the federal government than the hospitals in an urban area, especially in a metropolitan area or what they call uh, in the Census Bureau, urbanized. So this is, a, this is a big deal, especially if you're a health care provider. If you're a health care provider and you've got, say, a satellite uh, hospital or satellite clinic, that was in an area that I just mentioned that has over 2,500 people, you weren't getting the kind of federal dollars maybe you needed to really provide the best services possible. So now, if you're in one of these areas, you're under 5,000, you're going to qualify for funding that you didn't qualify for before, and that's going to benefit your patients. It also may mean fewer patients have to be shipped off to a larger facility elsewhere to deal with some of their ailments. Glad to see that the Census Bureau is doing this. I think it's overdue. The definition that they had had been in place for more than a hundred years. It seemed a bit bizarre to me. Nothing short of bizarre. So long overdue. Glad it's happening. Uh, and for those of you that have always said you live in a rural area, now now you've got the the proof to back it up. For those of you that say oh, I live in an urban area, you might have to redefine yourself. Could happen. At the end of the year, we always talk about. I'm shifting gears here. At the end of the year, we always talk about some of the lives that were lived and came to an end in the previous year. Some big ones this year. Uh, But one of the biggest names in all of sports and sports history passed away last year. And I want to pay homage to Pele or Pele uh, in our next segment. I'll do that in just moments. Chris Merrill, in for Mike Broomhead on KTAR. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show. KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Chris Maryland for Mike Broomhead, KTAR. A pleasure to be with you once again. We'll talk about that uh, weird lawsuit going on in Tempe and Shady Park and the, the nearby retirement community as they are arguing over noise in the entertainment district. Uh, that, uh, again, right after our 10 o'clock news. Pele passed away yesterday, I'm sure you heard. Um, dead at 82, 82 years old. I had been looking at his wiki page uh, as the World Cup began. 
I didn't realize he had a bunch of different medical maladies that, that he's been dealing with for a while. And it sounds like everything sort of just came to a head. Um, and I was thinking about Pele is, has got a weird spot in my mind. There are certain moments from your childhood that you remember. And this one is a little bit bizarre. It involves Pele. And I probably wouldn't think about it except, uh, unless somebody mentions the name. I just remember being a, a kid in elementary school, early 80s. And we had, uh, it was like a newspaper that came out for kids. I think it was once a month, this little newspaper. It was a black and white newspaper that would tell stories to kids. And so I was sitting there in Mrs. Musco's class. And uh, it was, the newspaper came out. And it gave us an opportunity to... to fumble through our reading skills and, and take a look at the different news, and it was all tailored toward toward elementary school uh, children. And I just remember, I, I, I don't think I can remember any other article in that stuff. I remember getting the newspaper once a month, but the only article I ever remember was about Pele. I didn't know anything about soccer at all. had no idea, but there was a story that was highlighting this guy Pele, and it talked about his influence on the game and, and uh, what a great man he was and what a great player he was. I was big in all the other sports, right? Especially baseball. When I was a little kid, I wanted to be a pro baseball player. I'm playing t-ball all the time. Couldn't wait to go play catch with my dad. And so when I read about this guy Pele, in my mind, he is, you know, I try to associate that, and it's like, well, this is the Babe Ruth of soccer. Uh, and I just remember that had, uh, you know, it kind of, it resonated. It had an influence. Suddenly I was curious, I suppose. It didn't make me want to run out and join a soccer club, but I'm sure it did for some kids. I'm sure that as some people watched Pele play, they were outside uh, just in the same way that I was years later watching Michael Jordan play, pretending I was Michael Jordan on the basketball uh, court. For some kids, they... They saw Pele, or they were reading about Pele, and they went outside and they pretended they were Pele in the World Cup. Because who else would you want to pretend to be? He was the greatest of all time. ABC had a great interview with uh, one of the sports writer from uh, USA Today, uh, Christine Brennan. I wanted to share some of what she said about uh, Pele. And I think there are millions and millions of Americans. I would say anyone who is 45 or older who might have heard the name Pele before, before they heard the word, word soccer. I know that sounds dramatic, but... For you and me and, and millions and millions of us growing up, soccer wasn't played by boys and girls at age four or five the way it is now. It was baseball or softball or just playing you know, around in neighborhoods, you know, bicycles, you know, shooting baskets, whatever. The organized sports craze had not yet hit America. True. And along came Pele playing for the New York Cosmos, as Maggie said in her piece, in 1975. And that's the first I ever heard of soccer. And I was a huge sports fan growing up. So 1975, Pele comes to New York. He's playing for the New York Cosmos. And all of a sudden, Americans realize there is soccer for the vast 99% of Americans. Um, and this is the, the biggest name in the sport. And to this day, I think many of us feel that way about him. So as children, we learned his name. And he brought us, he took us by the hand and brought us into soccer, the success of the U.S. men's and U.S. women's, especially U.S. women's national team that we've seen over the last few decades, Terry. I think we can chart that course from when America met Palin. Yeah. As I was listening to her, 
uh, Christine Brenner, uh, writer with USA Today in the sports pages. I was thinking of a, a buddy of mine who went to college with a, it was a small school, went to college though on a soccer scholarship. And I wondered, I haven't talked to him yet, I, I wondered if he had a similar experience, if it was like, you know, Pele was a guy that got him interested in the first place. And then the other name that came to mind immediately was Chad Benson. For those that, that don't know Chad, of course, uh, has got a long history of, of playing uh, amateur soccer. And I got to believe that Pele had influence on him in his, in his formative years. That that he was out in the backyard doing his drills and, and dribbling the soccer ball and uh, kicking it into makeshift goals. And for some of us, we got in trouble with our parents when we decided that the garage door looked like a, a pretty good soccer goal. So we just kept kicking the soccer ball at the garage door until dad came out and said, what in the heck is all that noise? And I think a lot of that was us just pretending to be Pele. We just wanted to be the dude. He played in the, the World Cups for Brazil Brazil won the World Cup when Pele was on the, the team in 1958, 1962, 1970. That's 1970 World Cup squad was considered the greatest football team in history. And I believe, if I have my, if I recall from some of the research I was doing, I believe that Brazil in that year, 1970, I think it was Pele that kicked it, the 100th World Cup goal for the Brazil team. Not in one World Cup, but the 100th goal that Brazil had scored in World Cup competition. That's impressive. It came in 1970. Of course, Brazil was such a dominant, dominant nation uh, in soccer. And then, as you heard uh, Christine Brennan talking about, he came to the United States and he played in the uh, the American Soccer League, the NASL that was going on. He played for the New York Cosmos. And the Cosmos really brought Pele in in the same way that we saw David Beckham come to the United States to try to to try to peak interest. They gave him a good contract. They tried him out there and they go this, Hey, everybody come see Pele. Come see the greatest soccer player of all time. The same thing. We saw that with David Beckham. Come see David Beckham. Greatest soccer player of all time. So he was able to take some of the notoriety that he had built up as a, as a soccer player in Brazil and bring that to the United States. And it peaked interest. It did wonders for the, the NASL. Now it's a league that's no longer with us, but it certainly got eyes on on the sport, and uh, and Pele continued to play into I think yeah nineteen seventy seven yeah nineteen seventy seven was his final uh, exhibition match I guess there was a final exhibition match that he played uh, not as it wasn't part of his official total um, played in front of a sold out crowd at Giant Stadium televised in the United States on the wide world of sports. And uh, his father and his wife attended that. Muhammad Ali was there. Some big ones. Played the first half of the Cosmos and the second with the Santos. He just switched teams mid-game. Cosmos won 2-1. to one. Pele scored a 30-yard free kick for the Cosmos in what was the final goal of his career. And during the second half, it started to rain, which prompted a Brazilian newspaper to come out with a headline the following day. Even the sky was crying. Oh, That's pretty cool, man. Anyway, Pele passing away at age 82. Sorry to see him go. Glad we got to know him while he was here. All right. Is it wrong to party on Mill? That's next. Chris Merrill in for Mike Broomhead, KTAR.